afternoon, we are continuing our study in Philippians. We're going to be looking at chapter 3. Last week, we looked at the friendship of Paul and the friendship that Paul had with the Philippians, with Timothy, and with Epaphroditus, and how they were mutually benefiting one another through their service to one another. And how this letter overall has been a letter of friendship. It's been this joyous letter with some encouragement and exhortation. Paul now transitions with this word, finally. It's kind of funny because chapter 3 falls pretty squarely in the middle of this little letter. And so you wonder, what does he mean by finally? Um, Well, it's not final. He'll say finally again in chapter 4 where he actually is coming uh, to an end uh, of the letter. But here, this finally might be better translated, as for the rest of the matter. I've laid out for you all this stuff with regard to Jesus, the example to us. I've laid out for you my own heart, what it is to live for Christ and to die as gain, to rejoice. Now, for the rest of the matter, or for what what remains to be said, he now transitions to talk a bit differently. He, He shifts his focus. It's a new section in the letter. Now, that isn't to say that some of those old themes will keep resounding. They will. Like I said before, uh, Philippians 2, that section on Jesus, everything flows into that and flows out of it. This is no different. And yet, this does take a turn for us. It marks a new section. But it will resound those themes of joy, of living and dying for Christ, of becoming like Christ. Those things will remain. And yet, here, there is a warning uh, that the Apostle Paul makes with regard to Judaizers, those who would have Gentile converts conform to the outward regulations of Jewish law. Now, this is not an uncommon theme in Paul's letters. We see it in Romans. We see it in Galatians. We see it in Corinthians. We see it elsewhere uh, in his letters. But here it is as well in Philippians. He has great concern that people would not fall into a false gospel. In the, gospel, in the letter of Galatians, he'll, he'll say, if I preach anything else, let me be anathema. And he speaks specifically of this issue. So with that, let us turn to the text. We're going to be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. You can follow along in your Bibles or uh, in your bulletins. Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask for your help in understanding your word. Help us to rest in Jesus. Find our hope in Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Now, all of life might be expressed in the idea of cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a little a strong statement. Um, it may seem a little bit cold and calculating. And I'm not necessarily talking about dollars and cents, what something is worth in monetary terms, but about how we all make decisions concerning all sorts of things. Whether we stated it or not, we often ask the question that when we're ever about to do something or undergo something, we ask the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? This past week, we watched our friend's dog. Now, we don't have any pets. On occasion, we think, should we get a dog? And we run through the costs and benefits. Just the other night, we, Aaron kind of talking up jokingly, reason 435, why we should not get a dog. Um, I'm not saying that's for everybody, right? This is our own calculations. And our friend's dog was easy. It was an animal that you could just leave alone. It did its thing. We, there, were, there was nothing to it. And yet we have no plans of getting a dog. I guess the costs still outweigh to us, in our minds, the benefits. But we run this type of calculation with all sorts of things, don't we? Schooling, jobs, relationships, housing, and on and on. You could, you could go through every decision you make and you think, is this worth it? Is this move worth it? Is this new job worth it? Is this relationship that I'm about to engage in worth it? Well, in our text this afternoon, Paul also uses this kind of cost-benefit language to talk about knowing Christ. And yet, as we'll see in a bit, it's very different, And because it, his conclusion is that knowing Christ is worth absolutely everything. Everything, he says, fits in the loss column compared to knowing Christ. Nothing compares. Life itself does not compare. Losing one's own life does not compare with knowing Jesus. But I would say Paul also understands how seductive the idea of retaining some measure of our own self, our own sort of goodness, our own righteousness for oneself, to, to keeping that, he understands how seductive this is. There was a song in the 90s by a singer named Meatloaf. It was a terrible name for a singer, and his songs were pretty lame, but he had one song, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I had no idea what he meant by that, and I'm sure people know, but I don't know. But I think we're often like this with our faith. I'll do anything for Jesus, but I'm not going to give up this little portion of my life. I'm, I want to own my salvation, a portion of my salvation, of my righteousness. But Paul says, I've been there. I've done that. And he calls 
that, that pursuit, if you will, of righteousness apart from Jesus, he calls it refuse. In fact, he uses language that is a little stronger than refuse. Um, It does not compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and trusting in his righteousness alone. Paul says this at the beginning, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in him alone. Find your joy in knowing him and being found in him. Any other righteousness is filthy rags. It's utterly worthless. And I want us to look at this idea of rejoicing in Jesus and in him alone in three parts. First, I want to look at the fool's gold of self-righteousness. I want to think a little bit about the cost of knowing Jesus. There is a cost involved. And then I want to land on and end on this idea of the joy in gaining Christ, in knowing him and being known by him, in gaining Christ, the joy in gaining Christ. But first, the fool's gold of self-righteousness. Paul begins this section not only exhorting them once again to rejoice in the world, in the Lord, sorry, not the world, rejoice in the Lord, but also by saying, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, what he's about to say with regard to the Judaizers is a warning which he has clearly given them before. Now, we don't have record of it. We don't necessarily have all the conversations that Paul has had with the Philippians or, for that matter, any other letter extant that we might look at. But he seems to be saying, I know I've said this before, but don't worry. It's not a bother to me. Don't worry. And it's for your safety. It's something that needs to be said over and over again. It's not a burden to repeat myself. And the reason I think, at least, that Paul believes this issue needs repeating is because of how quickly our hearts turn to fool's gold. How quickly our hearts turn towards self-righteousness of finding our identity in our own work. Now, our version of what it looks like to find self-righteousness might be a bit different from the first century. If we look at the situation Paul finds himself in, uh, they were being tempted to follow Jewish custom as a way to, pr- pr- uh, to prove uh, to others, particularly the community that they were in, that they were themselves devout, right? Uh, how do you show yourself to be devout? That was the question. That was the question for the Jewish community. And now in the, the Christian community, there was a group of Jewish converts who were saying, in order to prove your identity as a devout Christian, you need to also follow these Jewish customs. Particularly, they were saying that they needed to be circumcised outwardly, the Greek converts. You need to go through the process of circumcision. But it wasn't only circumcision. There's also the other purification laws dealing with not touching things that were unclean. Um, These were things that the the Jewish converts, some of them, this is not wholesale, but a few were arguing was necessary to show yourself to be worthy, to be holy. You see, the problem was that, at least within Judaism, by nature, Gentiles were seen as unclean people. They ate unclean food. They did not cleanse themselves ritually or properly. And so when they came together, for some of the Jews that were converts, this was too much. They were combining the clean 
and the unclean. In fact, the Gentiles were often in Judaism likened to dogs. What did dogs do? Well, they ate refuse in the streets. And we'll come back to that word refuse in a little bit because I think Paul turns the table here. Um, dogs were not clean. For Jews and for the Pharisaic tradition in general, separation or holiness was the core means of attaining uh, sort of uh, not just sort of relationship with God or something, but also how one was to be perceived within a community. That was how you, you had good standing, if you will, within that community. But now Gentiles were being included in the people of God, and for some Jews this was a difficult pill to swallow. And when the Jews became believers, they wrestled with, what about all those old holiness laws with regard to the Gentile converts? Remember Peter? He had a hard time with this in particular. You'll remember that in the book of Acts, in fact, the Lord gives him a vision. He sees a vision of a whole net full of unclean animals coming down and saying, take and eat. Um, saying all, all foods are now clean. And, and for Peter, it wasn't just about eating, but it was about actually going to the Gentile community and being willing to engage and identify himself with them. And in fact, later on, he has an issue with this. He's found isolating himself. When he ate, he would only eat with Jewish converts. And Paul confronts him to his face. We read about this uh, in Paul's letters. But for the Jewish Christian, this question of circumcision was large. This was an issue they had. This was the identifier of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. Here, what does it mean to be separated and set apart as the people of God? What does it mean to be holy? And God said, well, to Abraham, you and your children, you need to be circumcised. You need to set yourself apart. We need this sign that points to the need for some cleansings, for something to be cut away. Now, in Jesus, this sign of circumcision was done away with. He was the one who was cut off for us. He is the one who makes us holy. And so the sign of circumcision in the New Testament is done away with and is replaced with the sign of baptism. But whatever the case with circumcision, it was never really meant to be about that outward visible sign. It was always relating to the heart. What does it mean to be holy? has to do with the heart. Yet, as is the case with cultural symbols, we tend to find our identity in them. So the false teachers, the Judaizers, are trying to apply these signs. To be a good Christian, sometimes in our own lives, in our own churches, we make signs that everyone should conform to this to, to, so that we can measure. And this is really at the heart of our problem. We want measurable standards by which we can conform ourselves to. We want to be able to say to one another, I'm good. Are you good? No, you're not good. You know, you need, you need to wear that buttoned-up shirt when you come to church. You're not good. What is the measure? But it's actually not just a Christian thing, this, this sort of social uh, identification of saying, am I good, are you good? Where's the measure? This is a cultural thing. 
There's always been a civil religion or civil morality to which one either conforms to or doesn't conform to, and there might be multiple uh, moralities, if you will, within a culture. And so there's a recent phrase that has been coined that I've mentioned before, but has entered our civil dialogue, our civil consciousness. It's this idea of virtual, virtue signaling. Whether you are politically right, whether you are politically left, it doesn't really matter. There are certain markers or things that we say and do to tell others, I'm okay, are you okay? I'm okay, I'm good. I'm not like those people over there, you can trust me. You see, we desperately want to be affirmed. We want people to say, you're good. You're an insider, you're part of us, whatever group you're in. We do that. It's like, it's a default mechanism. When Paul goes off on his own right to virtue signal, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. This could be translated, I'm an eight-dayer. Are you an eight-dayer? I, I, I was circumcised on the eighth, eighth day. Not only that, but I, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. You remember the tribe of Benjamin. It was associated with the tribe of Judah. They were, they were very closely related. All the other tribes, they left, right? The northern kingdom, gone. But who's, who remained somewhat faithful at the end of the period of the kings? Oh, it was Benjamin, Judah. Not only that, but there's kings in the line of Benjamin. You've got King Saul. And, and he, he may not be the best king, but he was the first king. He's saying, I was, a, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only was that my birth, not only could I wear this badge of my birth order, but in terms of my own life, I was a Pharisee. We learn elsewhere in, 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 about Paul that he, was, he studied under one of the great scholars, Gamaliel. He was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says a little later on that he, you know, about the law, he was, he was blameless. Not only that, but he was zealous. He was a zealot for the purity of the church, if you will, of the Jewish people. He went out and even persecuted blasphemers. Right? He stood by as Stephen was stoned. He had all the credibility anybody could ever want. And we all do this. We all virtue signal to whatever group we're interested in identifying ourselves with. We do this culturally, but maybe even more poignantly, we do this within the context of the church. For previous generations of Christians or certain Christian traditions, the issue of drinking, alcohol, or dancing, or things like that was a sign. It was a virtue signal. I don't drink. If you drink, there's something wrong, right? I don't dance. If you did, there's something wrong. But for others in the church, it might be ways in which we identify ourselves politically. For others of you, it might be theological acumen. Well, I read Calvin. Who do you read? <laughs> and maybe it's not just theological acumen. That's, that's one, but it could be a theological issue. Where do you stand on the end times? What's your position? Oh, you're one of those, right? We virtue signal, we, we identify ourselves and lift ourselves up. For others, maybe it's much more simple than that. It's, oh, how do you raise your children? What do you allow your children to do or not to do? 
for moms, this is, this is a real challenge, not to be judging one another, not to stand up and, and, and dads too, to not stand up and look down on others or to look up and say, oh, I don't measure up or whatever it is, we do that with one another. Or maybe it's even education, how we educate our children. I go, I go to Christian school. I, well, we send our kids to the public school. We're missionaries. Oh, whoa, no, we homeschool. Now, we do it in all so many ways. We make these signals that, that identify ourselves as good. And we can even do it with things that are morally right, things that are good, things that aren't just matters of conscience but things that have moral value. We can become measures. Well, I don't do X, which is a sin. And we measure others by that same standards. Now, don't get me wrong. We are called to prod one another to faith and good works. We're called to call one another to faith and repentance and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're supposed to speak truth and love to one another, encouraging one another in our faith. I'm not, I'm not talking about sanctification and our striving to grow together up in Christ, but what I'm talking about is using outward measures as a way of justifying ourselves before God and one another. We do this all the time. And I think it's because... We want to be told, you're good. You're a good person. I want to know that I'm okay. I want people to say, yeah, maybe you're not perfect, but you're better than so-and-so. You're doing a pretty good job. And according to the Apostle Paul here in Philippians 3, this is fool's gold. Fool's gold. It is a pretty attainable outward form that is ultimately worth nothing. In fact, it's not even counted as anything but loss. And Paul drives this point home. The problem of pouring our energy in uh, attaining this fool's gold is that it doesn't profit us. It doesn't gain us anything. Paul calls these Judaizers who would leave the Philippian church down this path. He calls them dogs. Some of your strong language of the Apostle Paul here, right? He calls them dogs. Paul is using this ironic term, right? He's saying, yeah, normally you would say the Gentiles are dogs. They're unclean animals that eat refuse. But now he's saying those who would tell you that there is a righteousness, a goodness, apart from Jesus, are like dogs leading you to the dung heap. But he goes further and he says, they're evil doers evildoers. Again, they would have thought of themselves as do-gooders. They would have thought of themselves as those who were trying to help, uh, help everybody be good. As those who were doing religion in the right way, they were virtue signals, virtue signalers par excellence. And Paul says, they've got it backwards. They are leading you away from Christ, back under the yoke of the law. And by doing so, they are doing evil to the point that they are not cleansing your flesh, but they are mutilators of the flesh. Now, I have to be really clear here. Paul isn't saying that circumcision by its very nature is in itself evil. In fact, he exhorts Timothy to get circumcised for the sake of those to whom he was ministering, not because it meant anything, but because he was trying to say, Timothy, you're ministering in this context. 
It'd be best if you got circumcised, not because of any righteous sign. And that's the problem. Circumcision is at best a sign, and a sign that found its fulfillment in the death of Christ. And circumcision is ultimately something done in the heart by the Spirit. In fact, the evil and mutilation that the Judaizers are committing is saying that Christ is not sufficient. What they're doing is they're saying, it is not enough for you to rest in Jesus. The issue of circumcision, of course, is not our issue. But the issue of seeking righteousness apart from Christ, of considering his work insufficient, is a problem for every Christian in every generation. And the question is, why does that fool's gold look so precious to me? We've got to ask ourselves that question. Why am I so drawn to it? And the reason is, like Adam and Eve in the garden, I think we want to be like God. We, we want to be knowers or judges of good and evil. You see, sin at its very root rejects God as judge. We want to be judge, and we want to judge ourselves as good, and we want the measure to be attainable enough and visible enough that we can distinguish ourselves and judge others. This is what we do. And, and for now, I just want you to think about this. I want you to consider over the past year, a very fraught year, how much you've judged others. How you in your own way have made virtue signals and symbols. Ways which you parade your own self-righteousness. And I'm going to confess to you right now, when I think back over this year, I grieve for myself how I've made measures to judge myself and others by. Paul makes the point that if anyone he had the most reason to have confidence in the flesh. As I've already said, an eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, a zealot to the law blameless. If anyone had the right to judge and to show off his virtue, it was Paul. But the problem for us and for Paul lies in the fact that no matter how perfectly we conform ourselves to any outward standard or measure, and no matter how much we say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so, in our hearts, we all know that we do not measure up. We all stand naked and exposed before the living God, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. It is fool's gold. Paul says, whatever gain there was from all of that, I count it as loss. I've been really intrigued by the stock market these past months. There are a group of people, the Reddit Army at least, in, who in their public statements say they are buying stock that is fundamentally worthless. Sometimes it's GameStop, sometimes it's AMC, no matter what it is. 
their, their goal that no matter what, they're going to stick to it. They're going to buy it. They're going to hold it. And so it's complicated, but they're going to stick it to the man, to the hedge fund managers who are shorting those stocks. And so they drive the price of stock up artificially. They call themselves apes. They know that they're just doing this thing and that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the world. They know that they will likely lose everything, and yet they don't care. They know the stock isn't worth it, but they don't care. And they buy and hold, and they buy and hold no matter what happens. You see, they've lost sight of the value. The value of the stock is worthless, yet they're pretending like it has great value. Paul says, that's how I was. I doubled down on worthless stock. I gave everything to it. But in the end, it's all loss. It's fool's gold. Even though self-righteousness is fool's gold and it's completely worthless and it cannot save nor justify us in the sight of God, we still go after it. But even when we give it up, when we recognize it as fool's gold, I want to say that even when we recognize it and we say, no, all I need is Jesus and his righteousness, there is a real loss involved, involved in following Jesus. Don't, don't miss this. Following Jesus is a costly thing. It's a costly endeavor to know Jesus. Paul says as much here. He says, but whatever I gain, I had. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he had some sort of gain. And what was his gain? Well, it was public standing, pride, power, prestige. It's not nothing. It feels good to be recognized and esteemed by the world. It even feels good to be reviled by people that we stand against. Well, look who doesn't like me now. I, I feel good about myself. I've, I've, I've stood up. And it's something. It's not nothing. To give that up, to say, all of that matters nada, that matters nothing. To give it up and say, I'm not going to pursue myself anymore, but I'm going to pursue Christ, is to give up oneself. It's costly. And at the end of the section, he talks about the possible loss of physical life and the pain of suffering in following Jesus. To know Jesus is to share in his suffering. And to know Jesus, for Paul, to be to share in his death. Now, don't miss Paul. He's not suggesting that following Jesus is pie in the sky, that once you follow him, life becomes better. I, I, you talk to any Christian who's been a Christian for any length of time, who's followed Jesus for their life, they will regale you with stories of sorrow, of suffering, of loss that attends to faith. There is earthly loss involved in following Jesus. But there's a particular loss when we give up our glory. What do I mean by that? I, th I think there's a certain loss that we have that it, it's maybe not as tangible, but it's, it's saying, may I decrease that Christ might increase. May Christ be seen in me. May I not be seen. There's a, there's a loss of self-glory. What does it look like? Maybe it means we be more honest with one another. We drop our pretenses. 
We risk being seen and known in our brokenness, sharing our sin and pray, asking folks to pray for us, being willing to say, I, I know I'm a broken sinner. Please pray for me. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's giving up our glory and identifying with others who are not so put together, who aren't in, who don't fit our measure of what it means to be normal even, whatever that is. It means identifying with the broken. It entails being okay with being an outsider, of being reviled for your faith. You see, this is exactly what Jesus did when he did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, to be grasped hold of, but he made himself nothing. He became like us. He served us, and he died for us. There is earthly loss involved in knowing Christ, and there is suffering involved in knowing Christ, and there is death to self in knowing Christ. Yet all the loss does not compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. This is the gospel. There is nothing that compares to knowing Christ. There is joy inexpressible in gaining Jesus. Paul begins by calling the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And after warning them again against the fool's gold of self-righteousness, he says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying, we are the circumcision. We are those who have been set apart, who are holy, and that is not something we have done, but that is something that the Spirit of God does in us. He makes us holy. And we are the worshipers of God, of the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one who makes us holy. And we are those who glory in Christ Jesus. Our joy is found in Him. Our glory is found in Him. Our worth is found in Him and not in ourselves. And he goes on to describe this union and relationship that he has in Christ in much more detail. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost. That is, all the works of the flesh and his standing in the world, he counts it all as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. In fact, he calls all that loss, everything that he has gained by the flesh, as refuse. The King James translates this word as dung. Now, you can imagine there are more colorful ways to say the word dung. In the Greek, it's one of those more colorful ways, possibly. The word could also mean, it's the, 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 the construct of it is a little bit hard to determine. It could also mean the refuse that dogs eat in the street, which would connect it to what was before, right? To what he had said about dogs and it might be that he is saying that this is refuse. The, the Greek word is actually the combination of two, could be the combination of two words, dog and thrown out. So you might call it the, the, the thrown out dog garbage. Doesn't really matter, does it? It's gross stuff. 
He's calling everything that he had, all the standing that he had, everything that he had, it was either called a dung or this dog garbage that the dogs eat. Either way, he is saying it is all loss. It is the grossest thing one could imagine. And why is knowing Christ of such surpassing worth? Three things. Righteousness through faith in Christ, the power of the resurrection, and knowing Christ and being known by Him. So those three things, righteousness through faith in Christ. This is the answer to our great struggle, right? We want to be called good. We want everyone to say, look at him. He's a good guy. He's a good girl. He's, they are good people. We want to say that about ourselves. We want others to say that about us. But the problem is we know in our hearts that we are broken sinners and that there's nothing that we can do. We can put up pretenses. We can make the world think one way of us. But at the end of the day, when we get into our beds at night, we know the truth of our hearts that we are broken sinners. That there is no righteousness, no work of righteousness that we can do that can satisfy the justice of God, that, we can, that can make us right in God's eyes. And what Paul is saying here is that our righteousness is not of ourselves, but it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith in Him. Why is, this such a, why is Christ of such a surpassing worth? Because He is our righteousness. Because that great problem that we have of sin is done away with, that we are forgiven, that we are called His beloved, that we are His children, that He looks on us and He sees Jesus that we are called sons of the living God, co-heirs with Christ, that we have a righteousness that is counted to us that is not our own. Why is this of surpassing worth? Because we are set free and forgiven by the Lord Jesus. There's a second thing that Paul says here. And he's using this comparative. He goes back and forth between what is loss and what is gain. And he, this language of loss and gain, I'm not going to go into it, but it's, he wraps it all up and he's flipping the tables and he's saying, what we consider gain is all loss and now what we consider loss, that is ourselves, is all gain because we are found in Christ. And one of the things that are, we are found in Christ in is in his resurrection. So not only are we forgiven and is the, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and that we are no longer seen by God of heaven and earth, the judge of all things, as those damned to hell, but we are those seen as children. So not only that, but we are also given the power of resurrection. We are given new life. We are given the ability to walk in newness of life. Paul says here, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And what does that power enable us to do? Well, Paul says it enables me to suffer with Christ. It enables me to lay down my life because I know that I have the power of resurrection in me. Even if I go to the grave for the sake of the gospel, even if I die, I know that I live. So Paul says earlier in the letter, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is knowing Christ, being in Christ, of surpassing worth? Because we have the power of Christ and the resurrection in us. 
we have new life. So not only do we have a righteousness that is not ours, not only do we have the power of the resurrection, but at the very heart of all of this is this idea of knowing our Savior. There is no more glorious thing than to be known, is there? When we're married and we are known by our spouse, when we are children and we are known by our parents, when we are known by one another as close friends, when we know all the ins and outs of one another, that it's not just knowledge of one another, but it's this intimate relationship with one another. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. What we have in Christ is being known by Christ, being loved by Christ, being called into relationship with Christ, being united to Him. This is the glory and wonder of the gospel. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, I think I've shared this with you before, but at the beginning of the book of Exodus, you see a people, they're crying out to God because of they're under the yoke of slavery in Egypt. The people of God, they cry out to him, Lord, where, where are you? What, come, save us, deliver us. And in that, in that beginning of the, the book of Exodus, God, it says that God saw them and he knew. God saw them and he knew. That's what the text says. What did he do? He knew their suffering. He knew their enslavement. He knew that they were under the yoke of the Pharaoh. He knew they needed deliverance. Yes, he knew all those things about them. But when that word, no, is used by God of God's people in the Old Testament, it has a much more spectacular picture. It is the picture of God knowing them covenantally, of him knowing them relationally, of him saying, those are my children, and I love them, and I know them. And so he comes and he delivers them. So Jesus says in the Gospel of John in chapter 10, my sheep know my voice. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. When the Apostle Paul says here at the end of this, or the end of this section, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, being like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul is saying, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain because I can see my Savior, my friend, my God the one who gave himself for me, who loved me, who knew me and laid his life down for me. That is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. All else is refuse. What does it look like, believer, for us to rest in that? to be willing to lay down our lives for one another, to not worry about what others think about us, but to live lives that honor the Lord Jesus without consideration, but to love one another in humbleness. And yet, if you are still on that edge of whether or not to trust in Jesus, let me ask the question. Are you trusting in yourself? Do you even measure up to your own measure? And even if you do at night, and you sit there and you wonder, am I really good? And you know the brokenness of your own sin and the, the problems of your own heart. My cry to you, my 
plea to you is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in the one, the God of heaven who willingly laid down his life for you. It's of surpassing worth. All other righteousness is filthy rags. What glorious hope we have in Jesus. Let's pray.